Jesse Ross was a typical 19-year-old kid from a small town in Missouri. He had a deep love of music and dreamed of owning a muscle car. In the fall of 2006, he traveled to Chicago to participate in a mock United Nations conference. On the final evening of the conference, Jesse excused himself, left the hotel, and was never seen or heard from again. Jesse's story caught the attention of another college student, Brian Rose. Rose later became a documentary filmmaker, but he never forgot Ross's haunting disappearance. Rose began researching and filming the story on his own dime. Six years later, he released a story of memory and loss called When I Last Saw Jesse. The documentary was featured at several film festivals and had a short run at the Gene Siskel Center in Chicago. Rose joins me today from his home in Kansas City. So welcome, Brian. Thank you for joining me today on Talking Documentary. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. So first of all, congratulations on the film. I'm curious, how did this story come to your attention? Uh, well, it was a story that I followed from the beginning, really. Uh, I was a graduate student uh, in Southern Illinois at the time, uh, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And I had actually been to Chicago, my first visit to Chicago, in fact, um, less than a week prior to the uh, when Jesse disappeared. Uh, to visit a friend, and wound up uh, visiting many of the same places that Jesse had visited, and I even have uh, a photograph of the hotel that he disappeared from that I walked by, and uh, was struck when his uh, when he disappeared, and when I started learning more about the case, about all the similarities between us were fairly close in age, almost the same age, um, came from the same part of the country. We're both from you know, the Kansas City area. Um, and uh, similar interests. We both had interests uh, working in media, and we were both in Chicago, uh, you know, kind of naive, sort of wandering around this sort of bright, shiny place and having a good time and you know i was just sort of wandering about while i waited to link up with my friend and uh for some reason you know i made it back all right and he didn't and that always uh stuck with me when did you decide that this was a story that you needed to tell i wish uh i had like a better answer for why um you know, a lot of other filmmakers seem to have sort of that uh, aha moment uh, or that epiphany. And with me, uh, it's, my films tend to be very slow burn. Uh, they have a long gestation period, you could say. The, you know, I think for a long time I hadn't really considered a film about him because I just sort of assumed that it would all be resolved and every three or four months maybe I would Google his name and thinking, oh, well, surely they'll have figured it out uh, how this has ended. And there never was a resolution. I suppose finally if there was a, a catalyst, it was when I was back in Kansas City after grad school and had been working for a few years there as a freelance videographer and discovered um, that a colleague who I worked with had known Jesse and was friends with um, uh, Jesse's parents. And we got to talking, and uh, he gave me some more background on the case uh, since he was a little more familiar with it. And he put me in touch with Jesse's family, and that got things rolling. I think, I think especially, I think the final kicker was... Um, uh, a film like this couldn't be made without the participation of the family. And once I had gotten that introduction and once we got talking and they signaled their willingness to participate, then it's like, okay, this, uh, there, there's a film here to be made. How did you go about winning their trust? I'm sure that must have been a very emotional process. Well, I I wish I could say that I had uh, I had done more than uh, in that regard. They're, they're incredibly kind people, um, Don and Donna Ross, his parents, uh, and they've been incredibly outspoken uh, with regards to the case. And so uh, they were fairly open to talking with me. 
and I didn't want to uh, monopolize their time too much. Uh, but every few months or so, I would come over and would spend time with them, and we'd talk and have dinner, and uh, then I would hook up a little microphone to them, and we'd talk about Jesse and his case. And this kind of went on for uh, for a period. Uh, there was quite a bit of research involved in the case before I started doing any filming. I suppose the the, the one area where I did have to build up their trust was in uh, persuading them as to the approach the film would take because it is a very different uh, take on the true crime genre and on the unsolved case subgenre, I guess you could say. Because um, certainly a lot of my colleagues had um, some strong opinions about what I should and shouldn't do about the film. And, you know, that's kind of why I didn't have very many people that helped me on the film to begin with uh, because I don't think they thought I was necessarily going in the right direction, but his parents trusted me. Uh, you know, I showed them multiple cuts of the film as it went along, and, uh, you know, they never never said, we don't like the way this is going, or anything like that. They just uh, trusted me uh, that I was going to make the best decisions on their behalf. So it sounds like there was some trust right off the bat, that there was no concern about your motivation for making the film? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's that's correct. Um, of course, they just want as much attention paid to the case as possible. Uh, so I think they were appreciative of any interest because typically uh, what would happen is you would just get like the usual media coverage on the anniversary every year and then they would disappear again. So I think they appreciated having someone that had a more long-term vested interest in the case. The one thing that I've harbored um, guilt about, really, was you know something that I, I didn't really ever tell them uh, during the making was, uh, you know, I think a lot of filmmakers go into a film like this with you know big dreams that they're going to be the Errol Morris and they're going to crack the case and, and find and or, or something will come of it. And I don't know, I just, uh, I kind of went into it with more of a pessimistic sort of feeling that, you know, I, I'm not Errol Morris, I'm not, uh, you know, especially as I learn more about the case and more about um, the lack of evidence surrounding the case, I realized that the, there wasn't going to be a solution here, there wasn't going to be answers uh, in this in this particular case. And so I didn't. Uh, I didn't say that uh, I was going to try to. I didn't make promises, but at the same time, I think early, fairly early on, I realized that this had to be a different kind of film than a simple blow by blow. Here's the facts of the case, unsolved mysteries type episode. Because you know, Forty Eight Hours and Dateline do episodes like that every week. It had to be something more than that, I felt, to be something that would be memorable and be lasting, because I, I thought that that was really important, because in some regards, Jesse had been forgotten uh, by a lot of people who just moved on with their lives, and I wanted it to be something that, if nothing else, if there were never, if there never was resolution, if they never did find Jesse alive or dead that this might be something uh, that they could have that would say that their son lived and he mattered. He mattered enough to someone who didn't know him personally to make a film about him. Um, so that uh, so that was something there that I, uh, to kind of bring it full bring it around to what I was beginning with is that it's it's more of um, uh, a eulogy. It's more of a film about his absence uh, than it is really trying to solve the case because it's barring a miracle at this point. I think it's a pretty unsolvable case for a number of reasons. Yeah, you touch on genre, and I think that's why I really like the film is that it seemed to unapologetically reside in its own genre. It's partly a mystery. Partly a story of loss. It's 
a little bit about memory, but it's also about acceptance. You, you mentioned you had a little bit of a back and forth with some colleagues, like when you decided this is my approach, how did you get there? What was that process like? It was partly out of necessity because there was such a lack of um, of material. <clears throat> um, a lot of true crime documentaries tend to um, have a lot of content to draw upon. Uh, it's it's honestly it's something that sort of bothers me about the form because yeah, there we we see films like Making a Murderer or um, The Jinx, who just have a wealth of evidence and interviews and um, archival footage uh, to draw upon to make their six or eight or ten episodes. Uh, and I always I found myself thinking, you know, wow, how many films don't get made? How many stories don't get told because a filmmaker early on sees, oh, well, there's not enough here for me to... Uh, to go upon visually, I, I can't tell this story, and they move on. Uh, there's a real privilege upon uh, stories that you know are fortunate enough to have had lots of media coverage, or have had that one person who shot a lot of home movies, or uh, you know, of course, documentaries about celebrities always tend to get privileged because there's lots of footage of that celebrity to draw upon and and Jesse's case is really it falls into sort of this um this perfect spot in our technological history where we've really started to move away from recording on tape and recording on film but we're not quite uh to where I mean the iPhone wasn't out yet we're not seeing the ubiquity of camera phones people are still carrying little flip phones, and maybe a few have tiny digital cameras you wear around your wrists. Um, people aren't shooting a lot of video in that regard, and you're not seeing it posted online. And so, you know, the night of Jesse's disappearance, all that we really have are a half dozen or so images from CCTV and people who took photographs of him, um, and that's and that's it, really. I quickly just realized early on that interviews were were not going to cut it for for several reasons. Is one, I'm not a terrible fan of talking head interviews. Uh, I think for every Errol Morris who does it really well, there are lots of filmmakers who treat them as sort of filler. That anytime you don't have B roll or something to cut to, like oh well, we'll go back to the we'll go back to the talking head or something, and. I really didn't like the idea of um, sticking the Rosses down in front of uh, a camera and lights and sound people and having to have them talk about about their um, their loss. And I also quickly discovered that a lot of the people that I needed to interview were not conveniently located. They had really scattered. They're, they were all over the country. In some cases, they were in other parts of the world, and it was just not going to be possible to travel to each one of them to interview them. Uh, because early on, I decided to shoot on film for budgetary and technical reasons. Um, ironically, film was the most cost-effective means of shooting this, but only if I really controlled how much film I shot, and I couldn't afford to shoot a ton of footage of interviews. So it, it called upon a different approach, uh, and I studied a lot of documentaries, and the, really the big inspiration for this film that kind of showed the way to how this film was going to be made was Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, which is also a film about loss. It's a film that does not use archival footage at all and doesn't use reenactments. Uh, it does use interviews very heavily, but when it cuts away from those interviews, it's filming um, villages and towns that used to be uh, enclaves of Jewish culture and society, and it's filming empty fields that were once death camps. And it's allowing you to ponder these places that used to be alive or, or used to be the site of great horror. And you're left pondering this great absence of all these people who were once here but are now no longer. And that became uh, 
sort of the inspiration then for this film, which was it was going to be about retracing uh, Jesse's steps and visiting all those places and uh, getting a sense of where he was and conveying that we're in places where Jesse had been but is now no longer uh, to emphasize that that loss, the, the fact that these places are for some uh, still haunted by his presence. So you mentioned that the choice to shoot black and white 16 millimeter film was budgetary and not aesthetic. I think for most people it would be the opposite. So what, how did that play out? Yeah, it was primarily budgetary because when I started doing work on this film in earnest, which was uh, in early 2013, uh, it was a period of transition in terms of uh, camera technology. At that time, uh, the company I was working for, uh, who I, which I still work for, and um, everyone really outside of Hollywood was shooting in 1080p on a variety of different cameras, usually you know one-third inch chip cameras, something like that. It was all very, very straightforward. Um, but I'm starting to hear more and more about this 4K technology, ultra-high definition, and hearing more about ultra-high def projection. And I had had this experience with my previous documentary where I had adopted one digital format only for it to be really outdated by the time the film was finished, which I think hampered the film's success to a certain degree. And I was concerned about that, knowing that this was going to be a long project, and I didn't want to get locked into some digital format that was going to be uh, out of date uh, by the time the film was finished which was a good thing because it absolutely was out of date by the time the film was finished. And just looking at the at the cost, there were basically three options. And one was uh, buying a camera, which was going to be a big commitment, especially if I wanted to go the 4K uh, route, which was going to be more future resilient. That was going to cost a great deal of money at the time, um, you know, probably twenty or thirty thousand. Uh, I could have also rented. Uh, again, it would have been five, six, seven hundred for a package uh, per day. Multiply that times. Uh, I don't know how many days I actually filmed. Um, probably about twenty-five or thirty days scattered over over a period over a year, eighteen months. Uh, multiply that, and all of a sudden you're looking at again twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars, or I already had all of this 16 millimeter camera gear from when I first started off uh, shooting, you know, back in the early aughts, uh, and was also very cheap because no one was shooting film anymore. So I was able. I looked on eBay and like, oh, I'm able to get a Super 16 camera for five hundred dollars uh, from some, from from someone who's selling his gear. And I crunched the numbers on film stock and scanning, and I realized that okay. I will have to uh, plan this film out very heavily. I had to. I storyboarded the whole film. I had it edited as a as a as a radio audio only version with all my interviews before I shot any footage uh, to get the story fairly locked in. And I planned out all my locations. And I realized that okay, if I keep this shooting ratio really tight and don't do a lot of takes, this can actually be the most affordable option. And, um, you know, I'll have something, I'll have something on film, which will be, uh, very future resilient, uh, archivally sound, which is also something that concerns me as a historian. And, um, yeah, it wound up being the best option budgetarily. Uh, and black and white was the most affordable option. Uh, color, depending on the film stock you use, color is twice or three times as much as black and white, so that would have kind of blown up up the budget. Um, so it was very quickly early on, it was going to be black and white, Super 16 was going to be the way to go. Uh, but going to the question about aesthetics, I felt that that also had another benefit um, in that it would add a certain... Uh, there's something about 16 millimeter black and white. Uh, I think that goes back to when I saw the Blair Witch Project. Uh, it's to me, it's very claustrophobic for some reason. 
uh, because you you know the detail is softer and it's contrasty and uh, it feels kind of timeless. I wanted to get the sense that you know we're we're hearing a story from the early aughts, but it should feel instantly um, instantly dated uh, in in some way. Like like time has has sort of frozen in a way. This this format worked nicely for that, and. For for another reason, um, this is kind of an absolutist idea, but I kind of believe that uh, color is overused, quite frankly. I think that if you're going to shoot on color, you should really use color. I love Technicolor. I love bright, rich, vibrant color. And I always kind of hate it when people shoot on color and then they wind up desaturating it or they throw a blue filter over everything. It's like just shoot in black and white if, if you're going to make it monochromatic. And I knew uh, because it was important to film in the time period when the events occurred for an extra layer of, of verisimilitude uh, that I was going to be filming mostly in wintertime in the city, which is going to be very gray already it was just color would have just been kind of superfluous so it it fits for the conditions it's just it's just every box i checked off um said that black and white was the correct choice except uh for like i said all the people who said that i was nuts for shooting in black and white (laughs) i i think that's the genius of the film is it it does not look like other films and i think it has its own aesthetic story to tell again it's that uh, the mysteriousness, the timelessness. I, if you didn't know the date that it was filmed, you could guess eighties, nineties, aughts, or even this decade. Um, so I agree with that choice, frankly. Um, so you talk a lot about the, the, the commitment to B roll an hour and 20 minutes to be exact. That's a tremendous amount of I mean, anybody that's created a film knows that five seconds is longer than it seems. And you got to pile up, clip after clip after clip. And I, I looked at some of the scenes and I I noticed that there was a lot of detail and precision and you didn't just shoot random buildings. You shot specific buildings. You shot in, I think, the Ontario room, which is the exact room he was in. Tell me about that commitment. How long did it take? How many trips to Chicago? Um, four or five separate trips to Chicago, each of which wound up being about three, four days staying there. So, so yeah, that was, that that was about the amount of time that was spent there. And your one man crew, one man crew, um, partly out of necessity, uh, just, you know, it's, I've kind of discovered that people are always interested in helping on a film until you actually need their help. And then all of a sudden their weekends uh, start to fill up really quick. Um, So I just, uh, yeah, I just kind of kept it, kept it lean and mean. And uh, I think that also just sort of helped to minimize the amount of attention that I was drawing because, you know, there, I didn't have permission to film in a lot of, lot of places though i did try to try to get it so i had to kind of film on the sly uh and get up in the middle of the night when i knew uh the hotel that i was in would be empty and i could go and sort of roam the halls and i would you know sometimes carry the film the carry the camera under my arm or um kind of down low acting like i wasn't even filming like i was just carrying it to and fro when i was really shooting um doing all these all these kind of tricks but uh but yeah i had i had done a lot of research and all the locations had studied them all um and uh and yeah it was it was very important um to be authentic with uh with all the locations it's it's one it's another thing that really bothers me about documentaries in general but especially true crime is that they rely so heavily upon, um, I don't know, I guess what you might call random B-roll, you know, cutting away, like, we see in every film, you know, about murder in a small town, that, oh, we're going to show a shot here of a fence post, of a crow um, uh, perched on a a telephone wire or something, an empty main street and all all these places, but I never get a sense of 
of uh, continuity with what we're seeing. What does this place have to do with with anything regarding the film? Uh, where is this place? I have seen documentaries uh, where they have, you know, just outright been fallacious about these things. Where like they show a shot of a train station. I forget what documentary I saw where they showed a train station shot that was supposed to be one city's train station, and I recognized the train station. Like, that's that's a different one. That's not even in the same city. And that's, uh, you're abusing the trust of your audience, I think, when you do that. And, um, you know, Werner Herzog has talked a lot about his films, about what he calls the voodoo of location, that there is something about filming... Uh, on location, filming in places that are intimately connected to the film, which you know, in his case is why he chose to drag an actual steamboat up an actual hill in the jungle for Fitzcarraldo, because there was just a, it was going to add something that you couldn't replicate if you filmed it in uh, more uh, mainstream locales and just tried to dress it up to look like the jungle or filmed with models or something and so it, it, for this film I, it was really kind of a pact I wanted to make with the audience that everything they were going to see was authentic and that yes this is the actual Ontario room and this is the actual hotel room where um, you know Jesse went to a party this is the actual room where he stayed uh, and I stayed in that room which was kind of creepy um, I even went so far as, um, you know, because the the Model UN event that he disappeared from is still held in Chicago and still held at that hotel. So I was able to, I, I essentially booked a room in advance uh, at the hotel overlapping their event and took advantage of that fact because they had it all dressed up like it would have looked uh, during Jesse's time there went to the Ontario room and it was all set up exactly as they had, would have configured it. So they kind of did my set design for me and they did it in a way that would have been authentic. And in a number of cases, I filmed scenes at this on the same day and at the same time as when they took place. The shot featuring, uh, I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen the film, but a, a, a key shot late in the film of uh, a scene where a car accident takes place was filmed on the ex on the anniversary and at the time the accident took place uh, for for maximum just you know an authenticity in terms of this is what this would have looked like at this moment so uh, and, and I don't know most of the stuff you know the viewer will never know about but it's just more a matter that I know it's there and that if uh, anyone else else wonders about it or thinks about it that uh, it is going to be authentic. So in some cases, you actually did have to interpret your B-roll. So for instance, the detective in the film talks about his boyhood love of um, what was it? Uh, anthropology? And you had to choose a, a setting that kind of reflected kind of childhood mystery. And you, you seem to have found a a place with like an exposed old tire. Um, how did you find those kinds of settings that, that were in line with the rest of the film? They felt very intentional and very meticulous. Well, that was, uh, I mean, I got lucky there and like, that was the actual Creek that he explored, uh, in, in the town he grew up in. So when he, when he told me where it was, I, I just kind of, um, searched for it and I found, found the old spot and I got kind of lucky there um so that that too had a certain level of authenticity that oh this is where this detective actually um actually explored going back to the story a little bit um i'm curious it struck me as interesting that students so young were allowed so much free reign in a large unfamiliar city what what did you learn about kind of the circumstances in which jesse was in some respects, permitted to disappear. And how did that change policy going forward, or did it? Well, it's um, it's sort of one of those things, it's kind of like a byproduct of this sort of um, contradictory idea that we have of what constitutes adulthood, 
Uh, we've never really figured it out from a legal perspective. You know, I mean, I guess in terms of voting in adulthood, it's 18 years. But in terms of uh, gambling and drinking and doing more adult things, you need to be 21. And you can't rent a car without, I guess, a parent co-signing until you're 25, something like that. There's all these different ages we've established for that. And and so on this trip, yeah, there was this very... Um, it's this very sort of uh, difficult mix of people where you have like Jesse who was 19. So he's an adult. He's uh, therefore responsible for himself, but he and these other students are engaging in, you know, uh, technically illegal activities by drinking and, uh, and doing these things. But some things have changed, you know, as a result of Jesse's disappearance, uh, I, I give a lot of credit to the uh, American Model United Nations, uh, which hosts and continues to host the event that Jesse disappeared from, is that they changed their policies quite a bit. Um, one of the things that really uh, set the groundwork for Jesse's disappearance was that they had not booked out enough rooms in the hotel for all the visiting schools, so they used overflow into... Um, satellite hotels, like, you know, like other other hotels in the Sheraton family where people could stay from. So you all of a sudden had a lot of people participating who were having to walk or commute back and forth from their hotel to the event hotel, uh, which, as I understand, it doesn't happen anymore. Now everyone stays in the same hotel, so you're not constantly coming and going every day. So one character I want to ask about a little further is Derek Moorhead. He was the trip sponsor. This left a mark on him. Uh, he subsequently left the university. And the implication is that he didn't quite get over that. Boy, Derek, um, yeah, you're right. It uh, he, he never got over it. Uh, and unfortunately, he never got to see the film because he died um, uh, quite quite suddenly, not, you know, not long after my last interview with him, um, uh, I believe, of cancer. Uh, and he was fairly young. He was only in his 40s. So, it, uh, yeah, he never really recovered. I really do see him as one of, one of the victims of this, uh, this, this whole tragedy because he um, really did care about these kids and was enthusiastic about the law and about his work. I think where he really demonstrated his true character was that, like, like you know, he, he took incredibly detailed notes afterwards you know as a lawyer he really kind of was realized how important that was going to be and he was the first one to talk to a lot of these these kids these kids after it happened and um really i can't imagine the film existing at all without him because he was a crucial source of so much information um from his discussions with other people and from what he saw and from his interactions with the police and 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 he was so um, forthcoming and willing to talk when a lot of other people weren't willing to talk about this, who, frankly, had a lot less at stake than Derek did, and yet Derek still chose to to tell what he knew about it. Um, yeah, he really is the uh, um, next to the loss of Jesse himself. Uh, he's, I think, he, he's the, one of the great tragic um, characters, if I can use that word, uh, of this story. You mentioned that the film was self-funded. Um, for the filmmakers out there that are listening and trying to figure out how to kind of get their projects going and how to think them through, what lessons have you learned about the, the kind of the guerrilla filmmaking style and the economics of, of doing so? Well, it's... Um, Certainly, you know, for other filmmakers, uh, I think a lot of filmmakers are too preoccupied with uh, what they need to make the film. You know, they're always like, "I need this this amount of money. I need to fundraise this this much," uh, and it winds up sort of forestalling, uh, you know, the actual work. You know, we filmmakers need to be working. I think that we uh, there's something to be said for you. Know, you look at like filmmakers like uh, uh, John Ford and Howard Hawks, 
you know, and Alfred Hitchcock, they worked a lot. Uh, Ford made dozens and dozens of films before he his style matured into what we kind of now considered his sort of like his his peak films. And Alfred Hitchcock was making a film every year, and you know, I think a lot of filmmakers. They're always just sort of like, like well, I, I can't make the film yet because I don't have this money in place. And I think that the, the better approach is you look at, okay, well, what resources do you have available? I think, I think the ones who find more success are the ones who just start filming something because you just never know what's going to happen. Um, you know, ultimately, if, like, if the story is good, you know, you, you can shoot, that on a, shoot it on a camcorder, <laughs> I think. Uh, and if it's if it's done well and done compellingly, I think it'll it'll be great. And then I've seen lots of documentaries that are just immaculately shot and have lots of clearly have budget, but they're utterly forgettable. Just make something. And I I won't I won't lie uh, because like I still haven't I haven't had a big break or anything, and I still probably couldn't really fundraise uh, yet, but. Uh, I've made films that I'm proud of and I haven't had to compromise because there was a funder on board who was starting to dictate how the film was going to look. And I don't know, sooner or later, I think if you stick with it, you will achieve a certain degree of momentum because, you know, somebody will have seen or heard of your work. And, and it's, um, it's, uh, I think it says a lot when a filmmaker is ready for that point, because because yeah, you you don't want to be always funding your own films. That's uh, that's not terribly fun. It's a, it's a pretty stressful way to live your life. Uh, I think, and I certainly aspire to have my films funded, so I'm you know not always drawing on my own savings. Um, but I think think that eventually, if you just work and make films. Uh, when you are ready for that point uh, and really want to like fundraise something, I think it'll help a great deal when you can approach a funder and show them this body of work uh, that you've developed and you can show that, you know, yeah, I believe in myself because I put up my own money and I finish what I start and I know how to stick to a budget because it's my own money. And I think that says a lot to potential funders that they've got someone that's going to be reliable, that's going to finish what they start, and is going to be responsible with with their with their uh, contributions. In listening to the interviews, and I believe you had many with students, there seemed to be a a distance that came through in the interview bits. Did you get a sense that many of the people involved kind of just want to wipe their memory of the entire thing? There there seemed to be a, an emotional distance there. Yeah, I, I I certainly detected that, um, which I think is uh, was was understandable. One doesn't want to be defined by something like this. Uh, these are all students. If you look at, I don't know if you've ever done Model UN, but it's, it's Model UN is a magnet for overachievers. Uh, you have to be a certain kind of person that gets um, derives uh, satisfaction from that. And I think, like, a th- of, a, of the 12 or so students on this trip, a third of them uh, are now doctors, uh, and others are attorneys. Uh, and one person was working for a congressman. So they've all gone on to do really extraordinary things. And I can see where they, f- they feel like, um, you know, I've got, I've, I've got this whole life of these other uh, important accomplishments uh, I've dedicated myself to, and in not wanting wanting to be defined by by one event uh, in their life, you know, it may, it may sound a little callous. I don't think it's meant to be necessarily, but yeah, there is a certain degree of having to move on. You know, I do know that this was one of the, the great lessons I learned from this film, um, and something you know, like so it, it's almost become. Um, it's almost it's it's become cliche, I think, in documentaries, especially true crime, um, that there's always that title card at some point in the film that says um, so and so was reached out to for comments, but refused or declined to speak, 
And it's always done with a very sort of sinister, like, what do they have to hide? It's a very kind of convenient sort of trick to kind of gin up conspiracy and thoughts of nefariousness. And I had people asking me this, you know, why why did these people you interviewed want their voices disguised or not? they didn't want to be identified? And why didn't this person talk to you or that? What are they what were they wanting to hide? And I confess there was a point in an earlier cut of the film where I was going to have that, you know, um, these people were reached out to for comment but didn't, didn't respond or didn't speak. But then one of the interviews I had with one of the students, and they were just, uh, they just weren't sure if they wanted to talk about it because it was a really traumatic experience for them. Um, and it's not something they like to revisit, but he, this, they're also really concerned that if they don't speak with you, that their name is going to wind up in the documentary saying that they had refused to talk to you. And that was just, you know, I just felt at that moment, like what, uh, what a jerk I was for even thinking about doing that because, you know, you said it right there. This this person, this was a traumatic experience. I really, without sounding hyperbolic, I think next to next to invasive surgery or a doctor doing a physical exam, like documentarians are about the most invasive um, procedurists out there because we're asking people to talk about private, painful stuff for the explicit purpose of sharing it publicly for our own gain let's let's make no bones about it we're opportunists uh documentarians are out there to you know get their films seen and to make money and get it on netflix and uh, there is opportunism there it's not just oh we're storytellers and we're you know we're just dedicated to truth uh so there's an incredible responsibility i, I feel that we have uh in these interviews and um, and respecting people's wishes. So, yeah, after that, it went without saying. If someone wanted to be anonymous, yes, they were going to be anonymous. And if someone didn't want to speak, uh, I respected that because ultimately that's, that's their right. If uh, an accused person has the right to remain silent, then uh, so do the rest of us. <laughs> so you spent six years making this film and – your involvement in the film goes back even further. Surely you developed some intuition about what you think happened to Jesse. I definitely do. What I can say is this, and sort of people can kind of infer from it. Um, you know, in the film, there basically there are four possibilities that are floated, which is that one, Jesse um, fell into the river from having you know, having had too much to drink and just for whatever reason has not been discovered. Um, the second possibility is that he intentionally jumped into the river. Uh, third possibility is that he met with foul play. Uh, and the fourth possibility is that he disappeared of his own free will, uh, which that last one I think is, almost, I think is virtually impossible uh, or, or, or actually, I'll walk that back. I'll say it's uh, the least likely of them all for reasons the film gets into. But um, the other theories, you know, sur involving the river, involving foul play, I think depend on what you think Jesse's actions were that night. And I think in the film, um, if there is one uh, advancement the film does make, is I think it makes a pretty strong case that Jesse was not headed in the direction of the river, which is, would go to underlying, you know, that he either fell or jumped in the river. His actions, the route he took based on what witnesses saw, indicate that he intended to go back to his hotel to probably sleep off the, the drinking he'd been doing. Uh, and his hotel was in the direction opposite from the river. He's heading away from the river. And if you believe that, that he was headed away from the river, it really only leaves one possibility uh, that he encountered some kind of foul play 
or somebody somebody stopped him uh, along the way. And as for the reason why, I mean, the, the, the obvious response to that is, well, if he did meet with foul play, why wasn't there any evidence? Why didn't they find a body? Uh, which is a very good question. Um, one possibility, which I didn't introduce into the film for a number of reasons, it just it it. Uh, it it was just going to be too it was too speculative at that point and it was too much of a tangent uh that was it was uh it just didn't work within the film and it i just didn't have enough to go off of to like say okay i need to include this but i thought it was interesting that so jesse goes is last seen around 2 30 to 3 a.m and he's not really reported missing he's not noticed missing until you know um late morning the next you know the late morning um and he's not reported missing until around four so he's he's missing really for uh eleven hours um well the morning like that morning just a few hours after he was last seen was trash pickup for that part of Chicago so you know, audience, your listeners can infer what I mean when I say this, which is that any evidence of a crime, if he had met with foul play, um, very well could have been on its way to a landfill before Jesse was even reported missing. So that's, uh, that is what I think could be a real possibility. I understand you're working on a really interesting project to recreate an Orson Welles work. What, what's that project all about? Yeah, I'm. Um, yeah, I'm currently working on it's. Um, you know, I'm still pretty cash poor from Jesse's film, so I needed. You know, it, like I was saying before, you know, about like you, know, you have to, you have to just keep making work some some way or another. You just can't always be sitting around waiting for money to fall in your lap to give you permission to do something. And I knew early on. I've got to find something else to work on. Otherwise I'm going to go nuts having all this time that was occupied with Jesse's film. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Orson Welles's work and a big fan of uh, film in particular. He made, uh, his second feature after citizen Kane called the magnificent Ambersons, which is kind of the stuff of legend amongst filmmakers and film lovers is this, this, uh, legendary lost work that started off as a 130 minute sort of epic about the the decline of a wealthy family uh, 130 minutes and it was taken away from him by the studio which reshot the ending and cut about 45 minutes of footage um just really butchered it um and it's been uh, the lost footage they've searched for it for years but it's almost certainly been gone for decades you know destroyed or decomposed as nitrate does um but it was fortunately a film that was very well documented uh there was even a script made right before the film was re-edited that documented the the durations of every shot the dialogue the camera movements the music cues um, everything like almost like a blueprint and so based upon that for the last two years now i've been recreating the lost footage using animation i've recreated all the sets in a 3d space and i'm using uh hand-drawn frame-by-frame animation to recreate all the characters and uh right now i've got the first cut completed uh, the film exists again as a 132 minute feature and it's being looked at with by some scholars who i've been consulting on who are giving me advice on you know um uh, on uh the the work and if i've made any mistakes and then it'll be entering the refinement stage which will be probably another couple of years of refining the animation and really polishing it and uh it's fortunately it's not costly that's that's a good thing it's just a lot of work and it's uh it's something very different than what i've done before like i don't know this will probably this is probably will prevent me from ever being really known as a filmmaker, because most filmmakers who are known, I think, seem to kind of achieve that by adopting a certain style. You know, Ken Burns's films are of a, of a piece, and Gerald Morris's films are certainly of a stylistic piece. And but for me, once I've done one thing, I have to just go on and do something else. I don't have a desire to do another film like Jesse's 
and certainly not make a career out of missing persons films, although I'm sure I would probably attain more notoriety if I did it that way. Um, so this film is completely different than the previous one because it's all being done digitally and in a virtual uh, space and um, there's no real shooting to speak of, but um, it's uh, allowing me to continue to work on something and it just... Uh, keep on inching that way towards achieving some kind of critical mass that, well, uh, you know, Jesse uh, didn't get much notice, but um, maybe this next project will, and maybe at some point I'll uh, have a project and someone will say, hey, I saw Jesse's film, or I saw it at Amberson's. Uh, what are you working on next? And I'll be ready to say, oh, I've got this in the works. Uh, I could use some money for it. Well, Brian, I want to tell you again, I think it's a, a fabulous film. You did write by Jesse and his family, and I think you told a a mysterious story in a really beautiful way. Um, and I want to thank you for taking so much time to speak with me today. Before we go, where can we see this film, and where can we learn more about you? Well, uh, it's called When I Last Saw Jesse, and uh, it's available for free. Uh, if you're a member of Amazon Prime, it's on Amazon Prime for free. And if you're not a member, you can uh, see it for free on YouTube. And if you want to learn more about me, well, I'm on Facebook and uh uh, well, I work for a company called Wide Awake Films, so you can learn more about the work I do with them. They produce a lot of history films uh, here in Kansas City. Uh, the Ambersons film, I've got a website set up for that. If you want to go to www.ambersonproject.com, you can learn more about that and see a teaser for it. And uh, One of these days, maybe I'll, uh, I'll get something, i get a website up for myself uh, when, I've, when I've got some time. Brian, do that. Your work is good, and I I look forward to seeing the next thing you put out there. Thank you very much for uh, giving me a chance on uh, your first episode. I hope it's uh, the first of many. Thanks again to Brian Rose. His documentary, When I Last Saw Jesse, can be seen for free on YouTube in Amazon Prime Video. Watch it. It's terrific. Join me next time when I talk to Paige Tolmack, the Emmy-nominated director of the documentary, What Haunts Us. See you next time.